Assume the juxtaposition. Assume the juxtaposition. Assume the juxtaposition. Assume the juxtaposition. Welcome to another episode of Assume the Juxtaposition, the podcast where you're the host and I'm the guest. Our host this episode is a good friend of mine, very, very brilliant man, a man who has survived more things than you can possibly imagine. Literally, it shocks you. It shocks you. Brandon <laughs> Cumby, my friend, Brandon Cumby. Welcome. Thank you for hosting this. What are we going to be talking about on this episode, well, Brandon? Well, all right, all right, all right. Oh, McConaughey. Okay, very nice. So <laughs> no, actually, close, close. Um, you know, the, the story about that famous line that McConaughey issued in uh, Dazed and Confused, he, he was you know cast as the cool guy and he didn't really know exactly how to play that. And so he was really nervous. And so he went back to his trailer and he, I think he had a couple of pops and he was trying to figure out what his you know catchphrase was going to be what he's going to ad lib and he's a giant jim morrison fan and so <laughs> when they when it came time for him to drop his uh you know piece de resistance all he could think of was all right all right all right <laughs> and that was that was more one of morrison's absolute favorite uh things to do at a concert between a song like you know vamping of course he just ha hammered drunk and couldn't figure out anything else to say so well it definitely works better than if he was just to lean out that car window and say hey man you remember when we were in africa you remember when we were in africa <laughs> okay now that's funny i don't know why but <laughs> so morrison the lizard king yeah. yes yes the greatness of the doors that's exactly what we're going to be discussing today because i would probably hold myself out as the youngest uh you know door super fan that uh that walks the planet now so when did I, you I, I, i've been pestering you about doing a doors podcast for like four years <laughs> and the time has come this is the end, my friend, of your wait to do a podcast on The Doors, <laughs> because when the music's over, the talking begins, and that's what we're doing now on this podcast. Now, when was it that you first got into The Doors? Because for me, I mean, I was vaguely, well, I want to say I was familiar with them, but I will, I will admit something very embarrassing here. Back when I was growing up and in the era of those compilation albums you would get you would see advertised on tv freedom rock crap like that so there was one i remember from like the 70s that light my fire was one of the songs on the comp but it was the jose feliciano version of oh light my. my fire so That's for the longest yeah so for the longest time i thought that was a jose feliciano song so then i saw another comp not too long after that and i'm still i mean i don't know i'm like sixth seventh eighth grade whenever and it mentions the door doing like my fire and i'm like who are they some kind of knockoff cover band what is I, you know <laughs> so it wasn't until i got a little older now i really really got into them in college like hard hard so, so let's let's reset the uh let's reset to, to get an idea of the timeline here so seventh eighth grade bob is what circa 1979 yeah yeah i was i was in in seventh and eighth grade and 79 and 80 like like okay. my yeah that's exactly so, so that's that's when you first kind of got introduced a little bit and then college yeah because i mean i'd heard i had heard songs of theirs like not only light my fire but love me two times hello i love you hello i love you okay that's another one that was a big one for me because and this is another weird connection but there was a movie that came out in 1981 starring 
Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi, and it was not the Blues Brothers. It was one weird movie that very few people probably know about called Neighbors. You familiar with that huh. movie, Neighbors? You know, I've I've heard of that. Um, just reading through like John Belushi, you know, um, all the stuff that he's been in. You know, like yeah. reading through his resume, I've heard of it, but I've never seen it. No, it's a it's a weird flick. It's a comedy, but it's bizarre. It's a bizarro comedy, and didn't do great at the box office. The reviews aren't what? great, but it's worth it's worth the watch. When what I me and a buddy that? went. What's that now? 1981. 81 okay. Neighbors. Was that like the peak of Aykroyd's like cocaine days? Probably. Actually, it was Belushi who was really the guy who was the hardcore cokehead. I think Aykroyd was more of a casual uh, passenger. But the thing that I bring that up about was because there's a scene in that movie where Aykroyd's, I don't know, he's in the kitchen making a drink or something. And Hello, I Love You is blaring in the background on the soundtrack in the movie. And I'm like, yeah, I've heard this before. This is a great song. And I'm sitting on my buddy, who does this? I And he looks at me like, who does this? What the hell? It's the doors. So <laughs> twice in that time frame, I'm like completely not fluent on who the doors are, despite knowing several of their songs. Uh, and I remember Riders on the Storm when I was a little kid hearing that on the radio, you know, and I so I, I knew of the doors. I knew a lot of their music. But by the time I got into college and this is like mid 80s, I really like mid late 80s. That was my peak doors phase right before the movie came out. And then, of so, course, when the movie came out, I was just all in all the way. It, it was an interesting. Um, do, do you know much about kind of how the doors got revived? Uh, not really. No, no. That's so that, from. So, you know, so he was it the Danny movie. Sugarman book? Uh, that, that was part of it. Because I did uh, read that. No, no one gets out. No one here gets out alive. Yeah, I wonder. You know, that's a good question. I uh, think that book came out um, in the early 80s. Yeah, I want to say Is that, that I read that probably in the mid like 86. Six, seven, somewhere around there. Huh. Very interesting yeah, so, book. Very interesting. So, oh, it was published in 1980. Okay. So this this actually dovetails right into the story. So I think it's like circa 1981, 1982. Um, on the cover of Rolling Stone, um, there's a picture of young Morrison and the lion. You know his lion pose. Yeah. And um, it's the title is like he's hot, he's sexy, he's dead. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a Nixon campaign slogan. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> and so rested a, and ready. Hot, hot sexy and dead yeah let's see if there yeah there it is <laughs> he's hot he's sexy and he's dead that's the rolling stone that's the rolling stone cover that uh that kind of launched him back into our consciousness but that happened because of the sugarman book because pretty much from 1971 till 1980 the doors were a punchline because you know the the three dudes continued on until like 1977 did you know that the doors were together for six more years making fucking lounge act music i didn't realize it was that long but i did i do know they had put two or three albums out without him after he after he passed. Yeah, so it was it was kind of Sugarman in 1980, and then Morrison in 80 or the cover of Rolling Stone in 81, and then yeah. they dug up some they dug up some old Ben Fong Torres interviews uh, from you know almost famous. Um, they dug up some Ben Fong Torres interviews uh, with Morrison from way back in the day, and everyone kind of got really interested in that because he was a big name. Um, you know, Richie Unterberger was still alive, and he was talking about him how he used to you know really love their 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 music and. And it just started a snowball that ended up that culminated with the Doors movie in '91. So it took a whole ten years to, to pick the steam back up. But you know they've they've been a, a hot property. Um, they've been the hot name on Valley Ranch for <laughs> quite. The, I do remember, and you I think had it a was fun the, time at the White House. I think it was the early '80s that 
the live out was it a live she cried the live album with gloria on it yeah. like i remember that coming out and that being kind of a big thing like that video was on mtv and it was almost like a quote unquote new doors record like a, a new release uh and that was I, I i got that album and i remember it being kind of that kind of i, I would think got them back into the consciousness as well yeah there you know what you just brought something up um the i want to say only... that must have come out like in 83 maybe or something yeah so um let's see the 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 dudes from uh the basically is manzarek and uh robbie krieger okay dinsmore dinsmore's been happy to sit back and kind of collect his checks he doesn't want anything to do with it but they made a music video for la woman um in like 1984 and to be on mtv they were trying to they were trying to get the doors kind of back into the conversation so they took old old footage and made a music video which is you know kind of odd right these guys were these guys played their last concert in uh december of 1970 and now here they are in 1985 with a music video of a dead dude a dead dude walking the streets of la looking like a male prostitute <laughs> fred garvin fred garvin male prostitute <laughs> yeah so uh I, th- I think the hook the the selling point that i finally got you onto this uh to let me host this podcast was i i sent you a text one night um it, actually it was april the 19th of this year and i said i have an idea we're gonna do a whole show about la woman and jim morrison and elvis and just ponder the notion of what if morrison had lived and then instead of just elvis at the white house you know shaking nixon's hand getting a getting a, a fake badge or whatever <laughs> <laughs> would have been Morrison in another jumpsuit. You know, he would he would he would have been the alcohol czar. Those two would have just been doing karate in the garage like all the time, just sweaty and lots of lots of grunting. You know, Jerry Chef's off in the background playing bass as the soundtrack for it. And I just thought it's fucking funny because you know the odd connection there is that you know Elvis sort of became his own punchline, and I think Morrison was headed right towards it. Um, but you know he was a giant Elvis fan to the point that one of the only things that got LA woman made was yeah. uh, Paul Rothschild and Bruce Botnick brought Jerry chef in and Morse because Morrison wouldn't show up to rehearsal and he'd show up just hammered drunk and couldn't do anything. So they brought in Mark Benno and Jerry chef, two guys that Morrison really respected and Overnight, he sobered up, started showing up on time, putting in the work, and they they wrapped the album in six days. And it's become, you know, their magnum opus. Yeah. If it, par- partially because that's the last thing they did. Then he went off to Paris and died. So yeah, that's you know, the one correlation with him and Elvis is they both died in the bathroom. Correct. Didn't you know, Morrison die in a bathtub? Yeah, he was found in the uh, a bathtub in Paris. Yeah. So and Elvis died on the toilet. So they both died in the bathroom. I didn't even think about that connection. <laughs> that's uh that that's fun, I guess. That's that's a that's a that's a real fucking weird way to be connected though. Be like well, they both they both died in the bathroom. <laughs> well, it's just naked a- n- naked and bloated. <laughs> it's just a little side fun fact. That is fun. It is fun. Yeah, I was wanting to try to play the uh the changeling because that I think that's the song from LA Woman that just oh my god. I, I, that's the one that makes me think of that's the one that makes me think of uh the Elvis Morrison connection. It's just lots of grunts and guttural singing that you can tell he he's it's not coming from anywhere. He's just having fun with it. It yeah. just sounds so cheesy and and it's got like this porn bass but going on behind it. <laughs> And Manzarek's playing this uh, Hammond organ, so it just sounds super schmaltzy, like you're like you're at a Howard Johnson lounge or something. Uh, 
it's just not great. It's just not great. But yeah, the, the, the changeling was one of those was the song I think that made me kind of stop and go, huh, you know, Morrison was at like a fork in the road. He could have very easily gone full Elvis. Yeah. Um, it's interesting to think where he would have gone if he had lived. Like, I kind of feel like he, the doors would not have continued with him. Like, I don't, I don't think he would have, they would have remained intact had he lived. Yeah. I, I don't, I think the same thing. Um, in fact, again, the, so the whole thing, the whole, this whole show uh, that I want to do is kind of centered around that album. I, I, I really feel like it was his goodbye, uh, his goodbye letter yeah. to, to the, to America, to the doors, to the whole thing. He was ready to pick up and go be anonymous, you know, somewhere else where he could focus on his writing. He had, okay. uh, he had self-published a book um, that February and he gave, he gave uh, like autographed copies to all of his friends in the band. And was it and, poetry or was it, was it yeah. a novel and poetry? Okay. Yeah, it's was, it was, it was called um, an American prayer. Oh yeah. Yeah. I know that book. Yeah. Cause they came out with a, like an audio, like an album of that at one point, right? Isn't there like a release of, it's not really an audio book per se, but it's the album version of that, a lot of what's in that book, right? Yeah. Um, oddly enough, um, he was one of those people kind of before his time, he did a lot of recording on his own. And so, you know, like, you know, they, they're still finding stuff that Prince did that, that no one ever heard. Yeah. Um, he wasn't quite prolific, that prolific, but, you know, he actually recorded most of that book on his birthday, uh, the his 27th birthday, the year before, you know, all of this happened. Like it was, it was crazy how quick his life went from really great to shit. Like it, it, it happened in like 18 months. Yeah. But yeah, he, he recorded all that, uh, by himself, just drunkard and cooter Brown on his 27th birthday. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's the opening scene of the doors movie. He's sitting there in the recording studio, you know, with the whiskey. Yeah. He's like, Hey Jim, it's your, it's your birthday, man. Don't you want to go out and have some fun? He tells him to keep rolling. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So that's, you know, that's all, that's all legit. I mean, I know, I know that, uh, Oliver Stone made it a cartoon, but, um, the, 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 the actual content there was him recording that. Yeah. He, 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 he was tired of the music thing. I think he just wanted to, you know, as much of a drunk clown as he was, he was really a big thinker. You know, he's probably one of a, back then at least one of the most well-read, um, rock musicians. Yeah. And so, you know, he, he, he really was, he really was a masterful writer. In that um, way, he, he's very similar to another musical Morrison, Van Morrison, who also yes. is quite the drunk clown and very <laughs> literate and, and very, uh, very much uh, fancies himself a poet and author as well. So maybe that's the route he would have gone if he'd stayed around. You know, he maybe he would have gone into kind of uh, exile off the grid for a good portion of the 70s. But at some point, maybe he would have emerged and he would have gotten some more solo material from from him. Or maybe even he collaborated with somebody at some point. Who knows? Yeah, that would that would have been really interesting because uh, even as early as like 68, 69, he had done interviews where he you know, people would ask him, you know, what's the what's the future of music? Like, where does it go from here? Yeah, because obviously we were we were closing out the, the late 60s. The summer of love was dead and psychedelic rock was starting to fall off the map and you know you started to have kind of the glam rock stuff happen and it was kind of getting loungy and neil diamond was popular oh, and yeah. stuff like that right tom like the, jones yeah i mean i think the only exception probably is you know led zeppelin led zeppelin was just getting really cranked up but they were probably the exception to the rule right yeah. um i mean heavy metal was starting in earnest but th that would have been a hell of a pivot for the doors to go from yeah black psychedelic, sabbath yeah. psychedelic rock to like 
like Black Sabbath style stuff. But yeah, he uh, he he was on. He did a, quite a bit of inter, quite a bit of um, interviews where he talked about uh, how he thinks the face of music is electronic, and he oh, thinks really? that maybe yeah, it's it did super creepy listening to him talk. He's like, yeah, I think in the future that you know maybe there won't even be a band. Maybe it'll just be one guy up there with some machines and, and using <laughs> wow. that to play using that to play uh, play music, and he'll use you know take taper you know tapes and uh, different technologies to layer vocals and music. And he's like, I think that music is going to become, uh, you know, uh, an, something that everyone can do. So and, he predicted everyone- uh, girl talk and, uh, Diplo and all of these. <laughs> I mean, not not to not to stroke him off too much here, but yeah, kind of. <laughs> and, and of course, he's of course he's just wearing sunglasses in a studio, smoking, chain smoking, and everyone's going, "Yeah, Jim, sounds sounds good. Sounds sounds good, buddy." <laughs> they just think it's the ramblings of a lunatic. Ex- <laughs> well, you know, that's the they, they say that's the that's the difference, right? The, or yeah. the difference between like genius and and san- insanity is you know just one shade away. Exactly. Yeah, he- he straddled that line quite a bit. Yeah, but you know, there's some other interesting parts about him that I don't think, you know, the, the, I think the movie touches on some of it, but you know, I would almost say if you're a giant Morrison fan or a Doors fan, that you have to understand a little bit about his background and some of the things that happened outside the doors. And like a bunch of stuff makes sense when you really kind of peel peel him back as a as a person outside of the the drunk persona and the um, you know, the musician that sings, you know, very, very edible, uh, edible songs to get kicked out of a you know get kicked out of concert halls for indecency and inciting riots there's this whole other like almost too normal side of jim morrison that's that i think is not really all that known yeah yeah for sure do okay so so here's one in 19 he was a giant so besides being a giant elvis fan who else do you think that he would be a fan of musically like just just throw some names out sinatra dude you got it on the first try oh, i just i it just i just kind of feel like oddly enough Enough that that makes sense somehow. <laughs> yeah. So so aside from the old, you know, okay. So from like American pop music, those are his two big big ones. Those are his two yeah. big ones. But then he also loved um, like German opera. So you know okay. the song, you know uh, the one that everyone knows. You know whiskey Wagner. bar. Oh sh- oh, show me the way. Oh yeah, the uh, whiskey bar. Whiskey yeah, bar. yeah. Alabama so, song. Alabama song. So that came from a uh, from a German operetta from uh, Berchtold and Brecht. That mute that exact music yeah they, the lyrics the whole bit uh in in the opera there's the person who sings it is this chick who sings in falsetto and uh and and it's it's like a counter counter melody with another dude and this falsetto german chick oh show us the way to the next whiskey bar oh don't ask why oh don't ask why
Orson and Manzarek loved it. And they're like looking for some material to fill in when they didn't have a whole lot. And they're like, fuck it, let's play Alabama song. And they're, Cause they're like, no one here knows it. I mean, it's from like an obscure German opera in 1922. No one's going to call us out on it. That's fantastic. It does have that oompa, oompa, oompa. That, oh, yeah. yeah. But yeah, there's a, there's, there's all sorts of just weird, like weird things like that that make me think about what it must have been like to just be in his scene. You know, he was in LA in like 63, 64, 65. Yeah. So he, he predated a lot of the, the hippie culture. He was there for a while, um, you know, making, you know, finishing up college and, um, you know, making, making, trying to make movies and starting to make some music with Ray Manzarek, uh, like as early as, or as, you know, as early as 65. Yeah. Um, and then the doors, doors kind of formed in 66. But, you know, think about it. He's doing Light My Fire and uh, The End, late 66, early 67. And in 1965, you still had The Temptations were in the top 10. Right. I mean, you you had doo-wop 12 months before The Doors, really. Yeah. That's that's that, hey, that's a juxtaposition. Uh, um, <laughs> Definitely. But but the, there's some other interesting things. You know, he, he also has, I mean, basically everything this guy does is just weird, right? There's like nothing that he does that you go, oh, that's kind of normal. Um, so even normal things he managed to make odd um one of them was his uh his kind of choice in uh automobiles he was a giant car guy and his one of his good friends his hairdresser had a shelby gt350 and he really was jealous of it because he's like that's a sexy car yeah and and so when when uh when the doors first record you know broke through all the doors were uh, jack holtzman the president of Electra, who signed him was like hey guys good job i'm gonna buy you guys anything you want just pick it out oh man because they were signed to like a crappy contract because they didn't know yeah. any better. So I think Jack kind of felt bad and was like, I'm going to give these guys a little something. This is this is like almost criminal what we're doing here. Um, and they want to be like, able to retain them, you know, for future. I mean, they obviously were signed for a multi-record deal, but in his mind, he's probably thinking, yeah, if I yeah. do something, maybe I'll keep them longer. Yeah, there's not uh, some big some big labels not going to swoop in and steal them away from it. Yeah, because Electra was still kind of pretty small potatoes back then. They, they had oh, love. They had, uh, you know, a couple 
couple of bands, but yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't as big as they became. Yeah, no, absolutely. You're totally correct. So, you know, I think Ray, Ray and Dorothy asked for a house, you know, cause you could get a house for cheap back then. Yeah. Um, you know, I think John Dinsmore wanted a, uh, I think he wanted a Volkswagen van or some, some other crazy shit. Um, Dinsmore wanted a real expensive set of drums and Morrison wanted a Shelby GT 500 super snake. And he, and so Jack was like, I didn't even know, I didn't even know you drove. And he's like, I, he's like, I, he's like, I don't. So, so he had Jack Holtzman buy him a car and like, he essentially at that point had a, you know, a cursory, um, habit behind the wheel. So he, he wanted him to buy him a 600 horsepower hand-built custom <laughs> sports car. And the guy's like, yeah, yeah, I've driven a little bit. <laughs> oh man, that's classic. And, and, and apparently from, uh, uh, you know, I'm aside from music and technology and other things that I'm into, you know, I'm a big car guy. And so I've done a, this is also sucked me down into a rabbit hole. He, he apparently wrecked that thing so many times that it was just held together with like Bondo and bailing <laughs> wire by the end of it. He kept just rolling like, it into Carol Shelby's garage. Like, Hey, uh, can you, can you take a look at this? So again, th- this is, this is the thing about a scene that I find really odd. Morrison lived in an apartment that was less than two miles from Carol Shelby's shop while he oh. was there building cars. Wow. That That's how, that's how he and his friends were like, Hey, let's get a Shelby. Yeah. Cause that that, was, they weren't really widely known yet at that point. Cause it no, was still just kind of a custom deal. Yeah. Yeah. So he was, he was less than two miles from Carol's shop and his hairdresser had one. Um, was it Jay you know, Sebring? So yes. Who later, yeah, Jay Sebring yeah. also is no longer with us. We can thank old Charlie no. Manson for that. Yeah. So uh, I swear to, I swear if you're listening out there, I swear we didn't share any notes. Bob's nope. just that good with, with pop culture. No collusion. Um, no, no collusion. No. So yeah, Jay Sebring, um, Jay Sebring was Morrison's hairdresser. So that famous picture of him, you see with the hair all, all, you know, fluffed out on the, on the album cover. Yeah. That was a J that was a J Sebring special. And then, you know, two years later, he, he, he became a victim of, uh, in the Tate LaBianca murders. Yep. Well, squeaky from got to him or whoever it was, but yeah. So, so here's Morrison driving around a 600 horsepower car that he barely knows how to drive that he bought because he wanted to one up his hairdresser that got, that got killed by America's most, uh, one of America's most infamous serial killers. Like that's Jim Morrison's life. He's telling a simple story about how he, how he wanted to get a car like his friends. And he go, who's your friend? Oh, this guy that got killed by Charles Manson. Yeah. And Manson was trying to crack into the music scene. back then so yeah yeah wasn't he doing stuff with the wasn't he doing stuff with the beach boys yeah he he horned in on um dennis wilson brian's brother the the drummer he like he was he was crashing at his house and they got they were buddies at first but it wasn't long before manson got to be a massive ass whip and they were like this you know get out of here dude so yeah (laughs) that's crazy yeah so um so in particular kind of this this last album i've been i'm a giant doors fan giant morrison fan but in particular this last album how how the whole theme of this came up with the elvis and the karate in the garage was i was over at my dad's house my dad uh, First, first, my dad. I was over at my dad's house watching, uh, uh, you know, for his birthday, and my my grandma's there, and she's a giant Elvis fan, so she's she's looking bored. So my dad goes and puts on um, some live Elvis performance, and it happened to be Elvis from the International Hotel in Vegas, like circa 1970. Yeah, where he's he, he's on he's on the right side, he's on the upside of the drug train at this point. Okay, like it's it's all uppers that are driving him, so he's yeah. real happy and real sweaty and and uh, you know real frenetic, and he's just trying to hit on all of his <laughs> all of his backup singers and just it's, <laughs> it's, it's, El, it's Elvis where the, uh, the downers hadn't really taken hold yet. 
he wasn't he wasn't forgetting Werricks and uh and, and laughing at nothing. And he hadn't you know? fatted up yet. Nope. He he was it's kind of the classic Elvis that I think we all know that kind well, of Well it was uh, right after probably less than a year or so after the the uh, comeback special. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's kind of mid mid-length hair, he's still nice and trim, he's but he's got the big suits on, you know, yeah. he's starting to wear the wear the Liberace suits. Yeah, he's all, all evil Knieveled up. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's a better yeah. I think evil Knievel is probably a better reference than uh than you know behind the candelabra, but you know. <laughs> well, there was definitely a Liberace element to those outfits because of all the rhinestones and everything. Yeah. yeah, that's true. That's true. But but yeah, so um so I was over there watching that and my grandma's talking and and she's talking about Colonel Tom Parker and I just start rattling off some stuff because I just watched a documentary about Elvis <clears throat> and then I went home and uh I have you know I was looking at my phone and on my calendar, believe it or not, in my phone it said, you know, this is the day that um I had it saved in there apparently a couple of years ago, but yeah, this is the day that LA Woman was released. And so I checked, I checked the date. I was like, okay, so LA Woman was released on my dad's 17th birthday, April wow. 19th, 1971. Um, and you know, so my grandma had, you know, got, got me thinking of Elvis, and then I kind of went down the rabbit hole. Of so your dad Elvis. was born in 54? Yeah. Oh, okay. So he's only 12 years older than me. Yeah, I mean, old man. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so then I started thinking about the, the Elvis connection to Morrison, which is Jerry Chef, the bass player that played on played on this entire album, which yeah. really gave it a much different, fuller sound. Like, I don't know if you could go back to like early, early door stuff like touch. No, not touch me. That's that's got all the horns. But if you want to go back to, um, I don't know, even even break on my through. Fire. Yeah, light my fire, break yeah. on through light my fire they're really simple straightforward songs there's not a lot of texture that's being layered you know it's the drums it's the beat there's the melody and there's morrison because yeah because they didn't have piece. a bass player so manzarek would would create bass sounds from the keys right yeah so he had a he had a like a mini bass keyboard that was stacked up on top of his organ that he yeah. would that he would play with his uh with his uh right his left hand so instead of playing bass on the piano he'd play bass on an actual like bass um organ yeah and so he kind of laid down the you know the um the opening bits of um, let's see, let's break on through the dun 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 dun, dun yeah. that that bass note that's under there. Right. That's all Manzarek's left hand. So they didn't have a bass player at all, basically, until uh Morrison Hotel. And Morrison Hotel, they kind of had some uh some session some guys. Some, yeah, they had some wrecking crew guys. Oh, okay. Um, what about like Carol Kay? Was she one of the ones that they had brought in the the I, bassist? You know, I don't she was know. like the biggest um wrecking crew bass player, the most no- notable one, but yeah. Yeah, so um so then they had they had some they had some extra help. I mean, so they started bringing in like horns and instrumentation on the soft parade and yeah. they had Morrison hotel where they had a bass player just to kind of help fill out the sound. Um, but you know, LA woman was the first one where they fully brought in rhythm, guitar player, bass player. They, they really set up like a, like a real band, like a normal band would set up. And Manzarek was free to play the, the piano, the actual piano with both of his hands is the first record where he got to do that. Yeah. And you can so think of a- some of the songs from those records. Like, um, I mean, LA woman's a perfect example of some of the rollicking piano uh that goes through that that's he you couldn't play that with one hand that's definitely exactly. two-handed stuff yeah some of the piano playing on on la woman i think is actually um one of the most understated pieces that doesn't get talked about as much you know manzarek was uh, just as much of well you know he wasn't on the he wasn't making headlines for any bad behavior like morrison was but you know early days of the band he was right out there kind of leading the charge he was the it was he and morrison that really got the whole thing going yeah so he you know he i feel like he was happy to be the sort of unrecognized um underappreciated member of the band he was kind he, of the leader behind the scene yeah he he was older than them all by like 10 years yes he was married he was older he had been in a band he worked he worked a normal job he had been in the army uh man's 
Manzarek had been in the military. So, yeah. you know, Manzarek had done, had kind of done all the, the things that he's supposed to do. And he still got to his, you know, early thirties and said, man, I don't want to do that anymore. Let's, let's start a band and, and be a rock and roll musician. Yeah. Um, but he was already a, you know, he was already a, a fairly, you know, calm, calmer, sedator person. You know, the other guys were much younger and, uh, you know, Krieger and Dinsmore did, did a lot of acid with, with Morrison in the early days until they kind of were like, uh, I don't know how good that is for me. Yeah. And Manzarek well, probably had the most notable post doors career of anyone in the band. He did stuff like he produced the early, the seminal early X albums, you know, the band X, the punk band yeah. X. He, yeah, he, he produced those, those albums. So he, not, he, 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 he did some, he did some things, whereas, you know, Krieger and Densmore, you know, you didn't really hear a lot from those guys. I mean, no. The most notable thing Krieger did, I think, was to uh, appear with Creed at Lollapalooza '99. <laughs> oh, geez. You know, they continued on. They made another album, and the you know Morrison appeared on that posthumously. They took that birthday recording from 1970 and they cut it up and they turned they turned it. You know, I think you you heard that song in American Prayer. Yep. It starts out with the that kind of that rolling drum beat, and then there's the all the keyboards and stuff. It starts off. I think Morrison's first line in that is awake shake shake dreams from your hair my pretty child awake shake dreams from your hair my pretty child my sweet Choose the day and choose the sign of your day, the day's divinity, first thing you see. So that was that was from that birthday recording that he did. They just cut it up and added music to it, and that was literally the last thing that they all did as a band. Was they basically just used his uh, cut up voice as a vocal track and made a posthumous record with it, which is it grew on me. I, at first, I was like, "This is just a cash." They're just cashing in, but it really grew on me. Yeah, you know, those guys made a ton of money. Morrison died flat broke. Mm. He died. He died flat broke, even with all the publishing. Yeah. So so no, they wouldn't. They wouldn't publish. Okay. So his uh, he was really dumping all his money uh pam his uh his girlfriend his on on again off again common law wife uh that moved to paris with him uh, she had a boutique on like rodeo drive or something crazy yeah and he funded it and it oh. was a giant money pit oh hurts to miss that one yeah like his his uh his gt 500 super snake it yeah. was actually titled in his isn't his accountant's name and his accountant gave him an amex and he did not have any access to his cash he was basically he was just as bad with money as as a uh, you know Steven Tyler in the late 70s with heroin. Oh my god. <laughs> like his accountant was just like, no, you get this credit card and that's it. They had to they had to take his money away from him. Because he would just say yes to everything. It wasn't, he wasn't, I mean, he was drinking himself out of house and home, but he was funding all sorts of other projects. He self-funded a movie that no one wanted to touch, but he thought it was great. So he self-funded that thing. Um, which which you've never seen. He probably spent an inordinate amount of money on tacos too. Well, let's get some tacos <laughs> <laughs> that is true that is true but yeah so he he was really really cash strapped to the point the band had he was into the band for like a million and a half maybe the key was he should have actually opened the morrison airbnb instead of the morrison <laughs> hotel because there would have been a more sustainable stream of revenue 
That's that's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> so he's predicting electronic music. Then he's also then he goes, and by the way, one day you'll be able to order a room for a night on your phone. And they're like, what? And he's like, mark it down. It's gonna be called it's gonna be called Airbnb. And then let's then let's go get some tacos. Let's get some um, tacos. Oh, let's get some tacos. Yeah. So he was just really irresponsible with his, with his money. He was really in debt to ban when he died. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why uh, they kind of resurrected the whole doors thing is they kind of wanted to get, they, they were fine. They were, they were pretty flush with cash. Yeah. They wanted to, they wanted to get his estate. Made, they, they wanted to kind of be made whole. They're like, you know, Morrison borrowed a bunch of money from us. Yeah. I think we have a right to, you know, cash in on this a little bit. Um, and the three of them, you know, as a band uh, decided to, um, you know, I think almost all of them wrote a book. And so that they made some money individually, but then they started signing off on projects, right? The, the, the doors movie was the, was a big one. Yeah. Um, and then they got to 2003, which would have been Morrison's 60th birthday. And they decided that they were going to play LA woman beginning to end as a, you know, at a, at a concert, they're like, we want to go perform that album. Cause we never got to do it live. Cause it came out on April 19th. He was dead 115 days later. Yeah. So um, in 2003, they decided to do that and they, assembled Ian Asbury from the cult. They got Stuart Copeland um, from the police uh, to uh, to drum. And then like a month before they went on tour, uh, Copeland fell off his bike and broke his arm. So he had to bow out. I forgot who they, they got. It was another big name, um, but not someone I'm, I'm familiar with like Stuart Copeland. So they were going to play in Paris on his birthday. They were going to do the entire album um, on his 60th birthday. So December 8th, 19 or 2003. So they had like a four or five month tour to warm up for that. They wanted to kind of get their chops you know, they wanted to get back out there on the road and just yeah. see if they could play. So here's this crazy thing, Bob. I didn't realize it until tonight. I, I started off the episode telling you that I'd actually been to a door show. Like I'd actually seen Manzarek and Krieger play live. Yeah. I saw him on August 24th, 2003 at Jones Beach, New York with New York City in the back. Okay. Back, back dropping the Tommy Hilfiger clamshell there. That's right on the, uh, on the next to the water on Long Island. Yeah. And it was, it was Ian Asbury. And again, I forget the other drummer's name. What I didn't know is that I was coming on here to talk about LA Woman and Morrison. That was the very first show show that they debuted the LA woman beginning to end. That was the very first time the record got played live to an audience ever. Wow. I was at the show on accident. Oh my gosh. That's fantastic. I was, I was, I was up in New York. Um, I was working at a retail outfit that sold cell phones and I was supposed to go up there and hire a bunch of people and staff these stores. And I'd only been there for a week or so, but I was, I, I met these kids at a, at a, um, at an office depot, oddly enough, where we were trying to set up like a kiosk, one of those kiosk stores inside of a, a inside of an office depot. Yeah. Sell cell phones. Yeah. So I met these kiddos and, uh, you know, they're just like 18, 19, just wild ass. And I'm, and I'm, you know, I'm not too much older than them. I'm like 24, 25 on my first like real big business trip. Right. And so these, these kids are like, Hey man, you want to buy some beer? I'm like, I mean, sure. What, what do you, what do you got? What do you got to offer in, in return? And the giant stoner of their group was like, all right, man. All right. We're going to, we're going to this concert later on. If you want to go with us. And I'm like, Oh, okay uh, so i'm supposed to buy you beer for a concert ticket <laughs> and he's like yeah uh it's it's the doors man and i go hold on hold up hold up hold up and i'm like what the doors i'm like jim morrison's dead he's like no no no. it's the doors of the 21st century it's manzarek and krieger and whatever else so it, it's that day it's like five o'clock and i'm in my you know i'm in like a work shirt and slacks and uh you know with a rental car i'm like uh yeah they're like we're leaving here in 45 minutes so i r- rush back to the hotel change go back up to the like office max or whatever office 
Office Depot where, where I met these kids and uh, we went by the local store. I bought them some beer. We filled the trunk up full of beer and they drove me. I got in a car with five people I didn't know. Yeah. Dri- driving out to driving out to Jones Beach on the Long Island Expressway, like passing it, passing around a joint. Doors are blaring from the thing. I'm like I'm jammed four people in the backseat of like a 92 Honda Accord. And I'm just like, I have just, I have screwed up here. I am really in a bad place. <laughs> like, I don't know where they're taking me. I, is this, is this a legit concert? But yeah, I, I saw the doors do LA woman beginning to end live in front of an audience, August 24th, 2003. First time they ever played it. That was their kickoff show for that set list that they practiced all the rest of 2003 in preparation for Morrison's 60 birth, 60th birthday. How weird is that? That I just happened to be in New York on that day. Yeah. You know, working, met some random kids. I'm still friends with two of those kids. Actually, awesome. to, to this day, we're like, this is uh that was an interesting bonding experience. Yeah, damn sure was. I checked into it and the reason that they needed a drummer was like apparently Densmore was suffering and I guess still does from tinnitus or tinnitus, however you pronounce it. Oh yeah, he he does have that, but he's also very he also got very pissed off about them trying to make money. He's he's turned into the he's turned into what Morrison was in the early days. He doesn't want them to like profit off of he feels like abusing Jim's image for profit is ah really, and the guy that really replaced cool. Copeland, Stuart Copeland was Ty Dennis, who it says was the drummer in Krieger's band. So apparently Krieger had his own band at the time. And this guy's young, man. He was born in 71. Were they some spares that played in like a Applebee's parking lot? (laughs) I guess the Robbie Krieger band. That's yeah, that's interesting. Didn't realize he had his own band. Interestingly enough, he actually wrote a lot of their, you know, all of those guys really contributed, but he wrote some of their big songs. Yeah. He wrote Light My Fire. Yeah. Yeah. It was more the, you know, the story goes and it's been confirmed that Morrison sent them all home with homework and Robbie came back with Light My Fire. It was, it was supposed to be a lot faster. It was like a surf rock thing. Come on, baby, light my fire. Like high. Yeah. Cause he's a guitarist. You figure it's going to be a quick number like that. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was a little quicker, and then you know they got up, they started practicing it, and Morrison I think was like you know, Morrison and Dinsmore were like let's slow this down, put a crazy beat behind it. It's interesting that it was written by the guitarist, but it ended up being so much of a of a key focused uh, organ focused song because there's so much of that song that's driven by Manzarek and 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 his his organ. Yeah, that that's a that's a song. Or they're really thinking. if you think about it, the Doors, other than somebody like say Booker. And the MGs, they're one of the few bands, especially from that era, that that was really almost the predominant instrument in the band. That was front and oh, center, yeah. you know, the the organ. Yeah. Um, what was interesting though is that um, you know, Manzarek was the one that kind of that did tie a lot of the stuff together, right? He would come yep. up with Morrison would have some vocals, he would ask them to place to figure out some guitar stuff. Manzarek would try to tie it all together with some sort of a theme because you know, he was an actual like m- most of those guys were actually bona fide musicians. More Morrison was the only poser. Yeah, exactly. You know, um, but he the was rest the of them were, by and large. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, he, he contributed that way, but you know, Manzarek was the one who had, you know, 10 years of being in bands. He played with his brother. Uh, I think it was like Hal and Ray and the, whatever they were some like old Delta blues band. That was something that Morrison and, and um, Manzarek shared was the love of 
kind of the deep South blues, which is yeah. where you get a lot of LA woman. You know, this is, this is what is considered their, their almost, their almost blues uh, record, you know, yeah. besides LA, besides LA woman, which you can argue that LA woman's got some blues into it too, but besides writers and LA woman and, and probably La, La America, yeah. I think, you know, I mean, Lover Madly, obviously that was a radio song, but the Changeling, Been Down So Long, Been Down So Long is, uh, is a really great song. You know, Morrison got convicted to six months of hard labor um, for the Miami incident. Yeah. And he was on, he was uh, on appeal when he died in Paris. So, so he, he wrote, still could have theoretically had to do that time. Yeah. I mean, there's that line in that song, Warden, 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 why don't you throw away the lock and key? Well, I mean, exactly. they even did the John Lee Hooker cover on that album too, "Crawling King Snake." Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. I was gonna, I was gonna say there. A lot of their songs were, were covers of some sort, and even towards the end, they'll they'd still do a blues cover in there on you. They they yep. didn't think there was anything weird about that, but yeah, it's just the juxtaposition, honestly, between you know Morrison's taste, right? So on one hand, he's you know a big fan of Sinatra and Elvis, but then outside of that, yeah, I mean, I could hear Sinatra do "Lover Madly." <laughs> Seriously, don't you love? I- Madly, yeah, baby, but it's Phil Hartman doing Sinatra <laughs> Madly. Sign eight O'Connor, cue ball, corner pocket. Mm. Yeah, so um, God, that's re- that's really funny. But bes- besides those guys, it was all you know, John Lee Hooker. Um, who do you love, Bo Diddley? Yeah, I mean, even the Wasp is kind of a bluesy, you know, do 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 I want to tell you about Texas Radio and the Big B. Comes out of the Virginia swamps, cool and slow with money and precision. And the backbeat narrow and hard to master. It's yeah, their their stuff their stuff is just so eclectic and, and weird. It's almost like you 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 listen to it and it's timeless because you think, man, this probably shouldn't have ever worked. Like this shouldn't have this shouldn't have ever really worked. There was nothing yeah. there was nothing that was like it. No. And so I think that's one of the things that that um you know the doors are sort of polarizing. It's kind of like it's kind of like prog rock. Either you love it or you're just just against it. Yeah, there's not it's, many not many people that are lukewarm on the doors. It's no. if you either love them or you hate them. And I love them. You love them. Yeah. Uh, I know I, I've got, I, I, I understand, I understand why people hate, I, I understand how people don't get it and that's okay. Like I'm not one of those that's like, they're just wrong. I, I they do it. have a, a good number of songs though, that I feel like even if you hate them and Morrison, the songs still transcend, should transcend that some of them, you know? Yeah, I def- definitely. That's the other thing that I was kind of driving at earlier is that if you take Morrison's kind of whole scene, um, if you start from like his, from early sixties, all the way until his death he was tied up in some really heavy stuff man um his dad admiral morrison yes he was he was the commander of the pacific fleet at the gulf of tonkin his dad basically almost single-handedly set off the vietnam war whoa really yes wow i did i knew his dad was in the military but i guess i didn't realize the height of his rank slash power the the admiral was like 42 when he took command of the pacific fleet he was like the he was one of the young 
youngest admirals ever in the U.S. Navy. Wow. Um, his previous ship was a, there's a really good, there's a really funny picture of Morrison, like 16 years old with a, with a, you know, a, a short haircut. Yeah. Standing on the bridge of the, um, I think it was the Richard Bonham, the USS Richard Bonham, which is his dad's ship. And he's just standing there on the bridge with the admiral while he's, you know, pointing out what these things do. And the kid's just sitting there kind of like, oh man, that's OG whiz dad. <laughs> he's like, he's like, he's like, you know, in six years, I'm going to be singing a song about killing you in an LA theater. You know, I'm sorry. <laughs> but at that point he was still Opie Taylor pretty much. He pretty much was. He pretty much had a baseball card in his books. And, uh, you know, well, you wonder how much of his whole mindset and, and his whole visage and, 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 persona was kind of a reaction to being raised in a military environment and all that, you know? Yeah, no, he absolutely, it absolutely was, you know, that's the, you know, without tape veering too far off course here, like a lot of those late sixties, um, the kind of the images that you think of, right. The, the people that are associated with kind of the upheaval and the summer of love and the hippies and all that other stuff. So like, um, let's pick one out of the, out of the blue. Um, what's his name? Abby Hoffman. Yeah. Um, you know, he was an attorney who had, who came from a shit ton of money. Right. Um, he, he could afford to be out there, you know, stirring up shit. Cause he's like, I, I don't, I'm not worried about where my meal is going to come from. Mor- <laughs> yeah. Morrison's Morrison was uh, totally happy with, you know, sleeping on someone's roof and, um, and just doing whatever he could to make a few bucks to eat. And he knew that his, you know, his family was only a phone call away and they'd come get him. Yep. Um, Janice Joplin was probably the biggest one. She was essentially an oil heiress. Really? Yeah. Her, her family had a ton of money. I did not know that. I would have, I would have thought she came from a more of a uh, low lower income situation no no i mean i mean i i hope someone if someone's listening to this and they're like no that's wrong i mean please correct <laughs> me but from from what i remember uh yeah. joplin joplin's parents had raised her to be a lot more proper and educated and she basically just did the double birds over the over the shoulder as she drove away from houston out to la and decided to just go kind of you know, apply her craft but you know the the time the scene that he was in he he was 19 um when the british and invasion happened and then you know two years later he's singing light my fire carol shelby's a mile from you know two miles from his apartment yeah he's got the he's his dad starts the vietnam war i mean he's got the summer of love he's got uh the chicago riots in 68 which he wrote all about um in peace frog you know oh yeah peace frog was about was about the uh the riots the, the, the uh, democratic, riots democratic national convention in chicago yeah. yeah yeah blood on the streets in the town of chicago So, you know, that, that was his scene. And then 69, he had the, he had been a, become a big fan of this, um, this movement called the living theater, which was all about breaking the fourth wall. And so he was really, really kind of, he was like, he was like the first method guy. You know, he was like the first Christian Bale that loses 110 pounds to play (laughs) the machinist. Yeah. He, he would go, he really, he went to uh, San Francisco and, and would spend a lot of time at this place called the living theater. And he thought that, you know, he thought of himself as, as more 
more of a uh, a stage performer than a musician. And he's like, you know, I'm up here to lead an audience to a conclusion. He really, you know, it's they make the jokes about him being a shaman and all the Indian stuff, and it's a kind of a punchline in the Oliver Stone version of Jim Morrison. But he really, you know, from his from the people that he read, you know, he read a lot of uh, folks who wrote about theater, um, you know, philosophy and approaches and stuff. And so he he was really into the the act of performing, not so much the music, which you know you see if you see his live stuff, you know, he's definitely up there writhing around and dancing and yeah, there's a performance art element to it. Yeah. So he, he was really engrossed in this whole living theater thing and their whole deal was confronting the audience. So he goes down to Miami drunk, you know, drunk as a skunk and decides to, I mean, that's where you get the famous, you know, you're all a bunch of effing idiots. (laughs) (laughs) You're all a bunch of fucking idiots. that that's a great idea to to, to tell 15,000 people shoved into an auditorium for like 10,000 they're all a bunch of effing idiots um, <laughs> a riot. You know, he, he's, he tried he was trying to incite a riot and so you know he did the you know there's the whole fake whipping it out you know if he did if he didn't but then that was Miami and then he spent he didn't he didn't get convicted till the till September of 70 so from March of 69 to September of 70 they weren't allowed to play man that's right in there prime right there yeah they made two records but they weren't allowed to play because no one would insure them because of the whole whipping it out thing yeah and politically nixon had just taken office and so there's this giant groundswell of kind of anti-hippie yeah pushback. he had his enemies list and i'm sure morrison was on it yeah and so you know th- there's a there's a famous thing like there's a, a arena full of people in miami talking about how morrison was trying to you know corrupt the, the corrupt the christian nature of their children and all that other crazy stuff. He was um, another weird Morrison uh, rabbit hole to go down to is that when Two Life Crew went before the United States Supreme Court, yeah, um, what's that guy's name? Luke Luther Campbell. Yeah, L- Luther Campbell actually referenced Jim Morrison, and he was like, "I'm just a, I'm just another person that's in the long line of people that have been fighting you about what indecency is." Jim Morrison being one of them. Jay Z's a giant Jim Morrison fan. Nice. Jay Z made a um, made a mashup of um, when the music's over. Uh, uh, with it for a diss track uh, against um, what's his name? I think it's Nas. Yeah, it was a diss track called a called Takeover, but it's it has the dun 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 Yeah, that's a really good that's a really good thing to sample if you're going to sample from, something from the Doors. It's from Five to One. Sorry. Oh, that's right, Five to One. Five to One, baby. One to it, five. No the, one the part, here gets out alive. Yes, the vocals that he samples though are the gonna win. Yeah, we're taking over. R.O.C. We running this rap shit. Memphis Bleak. We running this rap shit. B.Mac. We running this rap shit. Freeway. We running this rap shit. Owen Spark. We running this rap shit. Chris and Neat. We running this rap shit. Takeover. 
so if you if you really just kind of digest the the kind of chaos that he kind of grew up in, he was born in 43. He was 18 and 61. 61 to 71 was probably, unless you want to talk Civil War or Great Depression, or before that, you know, probably, gosh, probably the probably the beginning of the country. Yeah. You know, it, it that that period, 61 to 71, what would definitely make a top 10 list of of times of change and upheaval in this country. Yeah, very chaotic. And and he also was a very th- a very deep thinking person. And so, you know, I think a lot of it, you know, he in his mind, his naivete being a young person, he thought that he could literally actually change society. Like his words, his actions, his thoughts could turn the entirety of humanity in a different direction. You know, he, he's 22, right? He's he's writing about all the stuff. He's 22, 23. He was uh, a time. hardcore idealist at that time. He, he was. And I, I think part of the fat, you know, whipping it out, yelling, slamming a microphone through a stage, you know, so drunk in public that he has to sit down on a drum riser and slur his lyrics. <laughs> you know, tw- 26 year old Jim Morrison is just him coming to grips with the fact that that ain't going to happen, bud. Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot to be said for that, for sure. Just that realization. Yeah. It, it's just, I, I, I see him somewhat as a little bit of a tragic hero. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think and, a lot and, of people and, just kind of write him off as, as being, um, kind of a, uh, not a lightweight, but just there not being a lot of substance to what, what he was doing. And I think there was a, there, there's a lot more substance than, than he gets credit for. Yeah, no, t- totally. And, and I, I, it's very popular to dogpile the movie and be yeah. like, Oh, well the, the movie did this to him. However, I'm going to take a different approach. I don't think that I think the movie exposed him figuratively um, exposed him <laughs> to a, a much wider audience. Of, I mean, I was born in 79. I was, I wasn't born until he was in the ground for like eight, almost nine years. Yeah. There's, there's really no reason why I should, you know, necessarily be a Doors fan. I, I will say that my dad is the one who I credit with turning me on to it. And again, I, you know, I was being a, probably a totally shitty teenager, but we're, he was driving me to a, uh, driving me to, uh, over to SMU and it was back in like high school, junior high area era. I was, yeah. um, doing like a summer program. So at, this would be early nineties. Yeah. Yeah. Early nineties, mid nineties. Like I, I hadn't even seen the Doors movie yet, probably 93, 94. Um, you know, we're driving over there in my dad's Ford Ranger and, and I just remember it plain as day that it's, it's like kind of cold and dreary outside. There's rain coming down. I'm I'm running a few minutes late, so I'm a little bit anxious. We're driving down the street by SMU and uh, Riders on the Storm comes on and dad like just gets so excited and just cranks it. And I'm over here kind of looking at the window going, what kind of lounge music shit is this? <laughs> you know, I, I, was, I was super into Nirvana, Soundgarden, Pearl Jam. Yeah, it's you know, I had a con- grunge, I had the con- peak of grunge, yeah. I had I had jelly bean blue combat boots on. I mean, I was I was totally just re- rebelling for no reason. Um, at that there time, were machines so I, to rage against, Cumby. Machines <laughs> to rage against. Oh, but you know, it just reminds me of an old sports song. You know, I wake <laughs> up in the morning and I step outside. Um, anyway, um, I, I was gonna do a little ribby sings for non blondes, but we're gonna save that for a different time. I mean, we don't need to. We don't need anyone to throw their headphones out of their ears after. <laughs> so, so, you know, he, he plays writers on the storm for me. And I'm just like, yeah, that's kind of, that's all right. It's, that's kind of you know interesting. I thought yeah. the lyrics were really interesting, you know? Oh yeah. Into this, into, into this world were, into this world were thrown. Into this house we're born. Into this world we're thrown. There's something about it that made me go, uh, 
uh, this music might be a little schmaltzy, but this guy may have something. And I think it was a couple of years later and I was in high school and someone was like, Hey, put in the, put in, Oh, I know what it was. There's a guy who was a freshman when I was a, a junior in high school who, uh, who was, who was wild ass, by the way, he, uh, <laughs> he was the, he was the first person I ever saw do heroin. Oh, um, wow. As a freshman in high school. My God. Yeah. 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 Wild ass. Kid. So he was, in, he was AP wild ass. <laughs> he wasn't even just the remedial badass. Yes. No, no, no. He, he, he was like talented and gifted wild ass. Yes. Um, but yeah, he, he had a giant. So at like 16, he had a giant, he had like 15, he had a giant green lizard tattoo on his leg, a real tattoo at 15 yeah. years old. Man. <laughs> this, I mean, this guy was like blurring every edge. Um, but so I was, you know, I was in marching band and, uh, you know, it's a big nerd and stuff. And, and we were, this is crazy. We we're going to a, uh, all region, uh, band competition and Casey is riding with me. Sorry, Casey. Uh, I'm calling you out like that, but Casey's riding with me in my Chevy Nova down to like Waxahachie to go play in a band competition. Yeah. <laughs> How dumb is that? Um, and he's, you know, he's in the backseat like, Hey man, uh, you want to you, you play the CD bro? And like puts in some doors. I'm like, okay. And I just hear that opening, the opening, you know, bossa Nova from break on or from, uh, you know, from break on through. Yep. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> and I, I was like, I was like, hold, what is, what is this? What is this? And he's like, he's like, this is, this is the best uh, band that's ever been. This is, this is Jim Morrison. This, this is why I have the lizard. He's like, is like why I have the lizard King written on my trumpet case. <laughs> I was like, Oh, Oh. And like 17, 18 year, year old Cumby was just like, I get it. I, I get it. I, I was at the time I was reading a lot of the same books that, you know, like I said, Morrison was not just a drunk clown. He was very well read. Oh yeah. I was reading a lot. I was reading a lot of the same books that he was reading at the time. And so hearing this music that I thought was groundbreaking, you know, the, the grunge era had like had grown up and then, you know, it got so big that it cr- fell under its own weight. We started to have a bunch of the poser, uh, you know, C- Creed started to become a thing. And I was like, I'm out, I'm out, I'm out <laughs> on all this. Um, you know, I don't want Limbiscuit Creed. I, I'm, I'm good. Um, you know, I mean, me and young Jake would not have gotten along. <laughs> um, but yeah, so all of a sudden I discovered the doors like 97, 98 and just been turning everyone. I could, I turned all my friends on to him about half of them hate him, but half of them think recognize the genius. Half of them are like, Oh God, come going to play some doors music again. Everyone run. Um, you know, but it just, uh, yeah, just a crazy thing. Like my dad, I definitely remember hearing writers on the storm for the first time and thinking this guy's got something, but it was a couple of years later before I really started listening to their stuff kind of all the way through. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and, and really I, I didn't know anything about Morrison's drunken buffoonery before I saw the movie, like, or, like around that time. And, you know, I'm, I'm young and in college and impressionable. And I think this guy's pretty cool. Um, I think the thing that struck me though, was not, you know, most people get either turned on or turned off by his wild behavior. Right. And I, I think the thing that struck me was that in between this, you know, this puckishness, if you will, you know, if you will, um, his, his penchant for like causing trouble. Well, and, he was, you know, he was a provocateur. Yeah, exactly. Um, the, the whole scene in the movie where he stands up and pisses on the bar because yeah. they don't serve him anymore. That place is called Barney's Beanery. I've been there. It's on La Cienega. Um, but yeah, he, that was legit. And they just cut him off. So he just peed on the bar. They're like, that's ridiculous. And then he came <laughs> back the next day and they're like, what's up, dude? We've already cleaned up all the piss. Just have a seat. Because um, <laughs> apparently, uh, you know, behind all the insanity, you know, there was a reason why he kept getting away with it. You know, people loved him. He was yep. actually not a horrible person. Um, but yeah, I just, I kind of got 
got sucked into the whole thing. And I was really into you know, the, the literature that he was into at the time. He was big into, uh, you know, beat literature uh, on the road. Jack Kerouac is still one of my absolute favorite books. I, yeah. I read it probably five or five or 10 times, five to 10 Ginsburg, times. Was he into Ginsburg also? Yeah, he was super into Ginsburg. Uh, all of the beat poets, you know, and he also had the weird, um, the weird Hemingway thing. You know, I think he, uh, some parts of his life when things got sad, kind of, you know, between the Miami deal and him getting disillusioned and then the whole dying in Paris bit, like yeah. that whole, that whole 20 months or so he, uh, you know, I think he started to kind of live out some of his, uh, some of his heroes, um, you know, kind of in times, you know, uh, Hemingway and Kerouac all got drunk and fat and just kind of killed themselves. Well, yeah. One of, one of them, one of them slowly and the other one, uh, very, very, very abruptly. Yes. One of them went the Bud Dwyer route or more actually the more, more of the Cobain route. Cause he went full shotgun. Hey, little sister. Hey, little sister shotgun. Which was a Billy Idol song who was in the doors bringing it all together. Oh, Bob, that's really, that's really funny. Um, dude, that's, that's, a uh, insanity how life kind of, you know, comes full circle. So, you know, it's, it doesn't, it doesn't mean a goddamn thing, but you know, the fact that this, this album, that's probably my favorite Doors album that I got to see live for the very first time ever since it got recorded, it was released on my dad's 17th birthday. My dad's the one who played the Doors for me probably circa night when I was 16 or 17. Um, and the fact that Jim Morris and I are all into the same, uh, you know, literature and art and whatnot that it, it just, I, I have this draw and connection to him that's so much more than the music. Well, yeah, the LA woman connection. I mean, you seeing them perform it live for the first time after it was released on your dad's birthday. I mean, that's a pretty (laughs) tight, tight uh, connection. And, and so where I was going to go with this, the reason why it's so, you know, all, all of these things make it important to me, but um, what I, what I really wanted to talk about, I mean, we're almost out of time, but what I really wanted to talk about was just the fact that this was his, you know, sort of, this was his everything to Magnum public, Opus to America. Yeah. It, it, this was, this was what he wanted to communicate to the public. You know, if I have to communicate one last time, th- this is, this is what I want to write. Um, you know, the, the changeling um, it's all about, you know, metamorphosis wanting to change, you know, Lover Madly was a Robbie Krieger song, by the way, not intended to be included on this album, but it just was a single that kind of got sucked into it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so he's got his prison song. He's, you know, he's got LA Woman. You know, LA Woman was written to the city of Los Angeles. It, it's he, the song is about personifying the city of Los Angeles as uh, as this person he's saying bye. Um, yeah. You know, are you a lucky little, uh, what is that? Are you a lucky little lady in the city, city of, of Light? Light. Yeah. Or just another lost angel, lost angel, Los Angeles. City, city of, of Night. Night. Okay. City so city, so city of night was an was a book. Oh, by this guy named John Retchie. Um, he was a hustler. He was a he was all into male prostitution. Um, and he wrote this book called City of Night, uh, based on uh, the the L.A. donut riots from 1959. <laughs> so 1959 was basically the uh, I think it was it was basically when the LAPD uh, went to war with this these people that these uh, beatniks that hung out in a coffee shop in L.A. This place called Cooper Donut. Yeah, and 
and this guy was part of them. And, and they, you know, they, they went to war with the cops, the cops beat them up and, you know, they, some of them got arrested and, you know, whatnot. And they, they all kind of went their separate ways, but you know, he wrote this book about, you know, male prostitution. It was mostly an autobiography. That was one of the things that was one of the books that Morrison just happened to like really like, because it was about his city. And he so masterfully weaves it in that if you're interested in knowing more about his lyrics, then, you know, there's something there. There's some substance that if you dig, yeah. you dig just like one or two layers deeper, but you know, on its face, the, the lyric in itself is good. Like you don't have to, you don't have to dive in. You can just appreciate that song for what it is. You know, it's got, it's got a, a driving bass line. It's the, the drum work on it's fantastic. Um, you know, he had, there's, there's that whole keyboard drum breakdown where he does the, you know, Mr. Mojo rising. Jim Morrison, if you take those letters and move them around, it's Mr. Mojo Rising. And what's, you know, to note is that uh, the word mojo in in the old Southern blues rock was basically referring to your sexual potency. Yes. And so, mojo, you know, all the- mojo, 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 the libido, the life force, the essence, the right stuff, what the French call a certain, I don't know what. All of his songs have this just element of, and this is this is the this is his literature coming out, right? This is the Hemingway in him coming out. All of his music has this weird sexual undertone where he's he's trying to portray himself as the most macho. Yes, and uh, and so he's got the whole Mister Mojo Rising thing. You know, if you go through almost every single big song that he's ever had, he's talking about some girl coming over and loving on him. And um, well, backdoor you know, man. I mean, that's well, not very subtle. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know, again, back man from a blues context was a uh, blues context just meant that you were the guy that was cheating on your woman so when your husband's coming to the front door you're running out the back door exactly um and the the other one was um god what's the the other line from backdoor man that always makes me that cracks me the f up is eat because, your again, beans <laughs> i eat all chicken every man so back in the day like eating chicken eating bird was a a reference to something (laughs) a a euphemism for yes eating out yeah (laughs) so so i mean he he's he's doing all this music that that reflects the stuff that's on his mind you know and it's all kind of it it's all kind of one cohesive um you know canvas right he he's telling he's telling all of these stories and it's an amalgamation of the stuff that he's read and stuff that he's experienced and it's it's just really for, for how simple and poppy it is there's a lot more to it and i and i dig that and you know i also there's there's a little bit of kinship with morrison i i i feel like you know and behind behind every asshole is just some dude that says i'm misunderstood but you know i feel like he was misunderstood in his time I feel like he wasn't wasn't completely you know he wanted to have he he had one image and he wanted to have more of a voice that was his own and he, he you know didn't know how to do it of all the things he knew how to do he couldn't figure that one out yeah and and so you know there's a little 
bit of a, of a like, Hey man, I, you know, I, I empathize. I empathize as someone who was an idealist as well and had to kind of grow up and understand that those are fine things to think about, but, but they're not, but when they don't happen, it's not a reason to be crushed. Right. No, I totally agree. But, but it's, that's a maturity thing. I think, you know, 27, 28 year old me probably was still like, you know, this is bullshit, man. (laughs) (laughs) Whereas I'm, whereas I'm now I'm still like, yeah, it's bullshit, but I'm also like, yeah, it's the way it's always been. It's the history of humanity. The additional perspective that you get with age when you're in your twenties, things are still very myopic in terms of your perception of, you know, like the whole idealism thing. And it's just the older you get, you, you are exposed to more of the realities of the world and it's, yeah. Yeah. I give you more context. Yeah. I I totally, totally agree. Here's, here's one other thing that I came across that I had no idea. You know, that the guy who played, um, you know, the guy who played guitar on LA woman, he's from Dallas. Really? He was a good, he's a, he was, and he's still alive. He lives, uh, he lives somewhere out in East Texas, but he played with, uh, he also played with Stevie Ray Vaughan. He was one of the only studio musicians that ever, that, that Stevie like fully accepted. Oh, wow. That's crazy. His Mark, his name is Mark Benno, M-A-R-C-B-E-N-N-O. He's a legit blues guitarist. But yeah, I was, I was looking him up earlier. Uh, looks like, uh, Wolonsky's friends with him. Wolonsky is friends with everyone who is of note in the oh, Dallas yeah. musical scene. I, I just thought that that was a really, you know, just, just, it, just an interesting, just a watch, just a wild, interesting note. <laughs> interesting fun fact. Yeah, there you go. In- interesting fun fact. So you have a son named Brett. <laughs> oh my God. That's incredible. That's incredibly dark. That's incredibly dark. <laughs> Man, I got to tell you, this, this is a great topic, a great discussion. I think we may even need to have subsequent episodes where maybe we do like an album by album or something because LA woman, you know, that, that really is a, an excellent album. I've always personally either the self-titled debut or Morrison hotel. have always been kind of my big, like favorite mm-hmm. doors records, but yeah, LA woman gets, gets undersold that I'm really glad you kind of focused on not just the music, but tying it all together. Really, really well done, sir. Yeah. Well, um, you know, I, I definitely, we definitely could do more, you know, go album by album, go, go song to song. I mean, that's, that's the kind of, that's the kind of door super freak that I am, but you know, I don't want to, I don't want to wear anybody else out, but yeah, yeah, I I really appreciate you uh, just getting another doors fan to a doors fan. Oh yeah. Kind of getting, kind of getting on here and and just kind of talking it through. Um, I really appreciate it. I, I, you know, I thought I knew, I thought I knew a lot. And as I was going through some of my notes and kind of reading back through the things that I know about the doors, you know, I I taught myself a few things and uh, you know, so this was a really good exercise. I had a good time talking about it doors music is a talking sport there is no question about it very fun very enjoyable so before we wrap up do you want to share with everyone anything regarding maybe like where they might be able to follow you on social media do you have a twitter account do you have an instagram or are there any projects you're working on that you want to kind of share i know you're you know you talked about cars and that i know you're a big enthusiast and proponent of you know electric cars and also big formula one guy so anything you want to um, pass along regarding what you're working on in that those areas or are those future episodes for us no i i think i think those could be future episodes um if if that if that's in the cards but yeah i'm i'm definitely um working on i I think this is probably my this is my podcast debut by the way so very well done 
Very well a, a done. Little, a little awkward, but you know, uh, it is what it is. I, I don't necessarily uh, feel all that for someone who's a big talker. I don't feel all that comfortable kind of talking about myself sometimes. So it's going to probably take a little bit to get over the, um, the, the understanding that I'm just behind a microphone. There's no one yeah. looking at me. <laughs> um, I can, I can edit and delete as much as I want. Yeah, um, for sure. So, you know, I, I can fix it in post as they say. Exactly. So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about tossing together and uh, kind of an F1 podcast that is from uh, kind of an American perspective and someone from, you know, I've been, I've been into cars for a long time. Um, you know, I had a, had an old Nova in high school and I, I bought a, a non-running Volkswagen Beetle from a neighbor and, and dragged it home with a rope um, and proceeded to take it apart in my dad's driveway, which he kind of looked at me like, you know, what's wrong with you? And <laughs> I put it all, put it all back together and got it running. Um, and I, I had never taken an engine apart before I did it all by myself, took it apart, rebuilt it, put it back together, got it to run. Um, I was 17, I think. And that was kind of my beginning into cars. And so from, from then until now, I've, you know, I've had a, I've had a bunch like 60 plus cars. Um, and it, and at one point I was like making money, buying, fixing and selling cars. And it just, it became too big of a, you know, once you have like a junk car empire for spare parts and stuff, you start to, you start to decide like, am I going down the Fred Sanford path or, maybe <laughs> you know, bump, bump. Now, um, I know on that F1 podcast that you've got in the works, you were looking for someone to ride shotgun, so to speak, even though F1 absolutely. cars. So absolutely. are you are you still looking for for that person who's a big F1 fan that might want to co-host with you? So I so I have a have a buddy who's uh who's willing to commit to you know be a part-time co-host, but I would love a full-time, you know, ride-along uh co-host on that on that podcast. I definitely th- that's something to me that I think that there's a there's a void, you know, right now. I was, and, and I'll be, you know, Mia culpa, open kimono, whatever you want to say, but <laughs> I, I'm, I was not the biggest F1 fan. I was a giant fan of endurance racing. I was a big 24 hours of Le Mans, you know, uh, 24 hours of Daytona, 12 hours of Sebring. I was actually a big, you know, before Ford versus Ferrari came out, I was a big endurance racing fan, big fan of Carol Shelby, even bigger, bigger fan of Peter Brock. I could, I could spend three hours telling you how the entire history of humanity has changed if Peter Brock isn't, isn't born. Um, that guy's a, that guy's an absolute amazing automotive powerhouse that he is responsible for Shelby's success. He's responsible for, um, the Corvette he's responsible for, um, Ferrari success at Le Mans. He's responsible for the GT 40 without Peter Brock. None of that stuff happened. Uh, he uncovered some old engineering drawings from, from Germany pre from pre world war II Germany. And pre. he is the pre anyway. Um, so I was a big fan of that genre, but and so, at that time you just basically said F F one, but now you're. <laughs> on board with F1. Well, I was, the, I was that casual fan. I was a casual fan of F1. You know, I obviously knew who Senna was. Fittipaldi. Um, yeah. Emerson Fittipaldi, which is, uh, you know, Emerson Fittipaldi. What do you think that guy, where do you think that guy's from? I would have guessed Italy. Yeah, he's, <laughs> hey, um, he, no, he's for, he's Brazilian. Oh, wow. So interesting. Um, he, he's a, he's a fellow, he's a fellow, you know, Brazilian with, uh, the Fittipaldi's or fellow, fellow Brazilians with Senna. Um, Ayrton you know, Senna. Yes. Yeah, Ayrton Senna's death crushed me, even though I was, you know, 94, I was like, what, 15? Yeah. Um, but me and my me and my best friend from high school really would, would watch, uh, you know, F1 over at his house all the time. But, you know, after after that, I kind of got out of it a little bit. I was more into music and cars than I was into, you know, music 
and working on cars, not so much watching car racing that I, that I never stood a chance of being able to participate in or go see. Cause at the time, you know, there wasn't any Grand Prix racing in the U S at all. And so, you know, I followed Schumacher. I followed, you know, Jacques Villeneuve from Canada. Um, that guy looked like he was in a, like he looked like he could have been in smash mouth. That guy was a <laughs> job, but, but I, I, I casually followed it and I, and I knew, I knew who Lewis Hamilton was. I would watch some of those highlights on YouTube, Yeah, but, but then that, then drive to survive came out and like everyone else, I got sucked in and I got to understand more of the dynamics behind it and kind of what's happening behind the scenes. And, you know, there's 20 seats for like 600 kids that have yeah. to go. Th- I mean, it's like, it's like competitive club baseball in the States over there. You have to start junior karting when you're like five or six and your parents have to fund that whole thing and you can't stop and you have to keep going until you're 18, 19 years old until you, or until you get picked up by a team. So like, you know, you could realistically be, your parents would have to kick in like a hundred grand a year from the age of six to 16 for you just to have a chance to have a seat in formula one. And even yeah. then, and even then there's like one out of 10. Oh man. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's like, it's like kids trying to, you know, blowing off school just so that they think they're going to be the next quarterback, the Dallas Cowboy. There's only one job there. You're not all going to be the next quarterback. Right. I mean, it's, it's a, it's an unfortunate thing, but like I got into all that side of F1 and just the rules and, and whatnot. I, I think it's interesting from an American perspective, from someone who's not been, you know, a lifelong fan. Like I didn't grow up with it. The, the Euros grew up with it. And so there's so much to know there. I think that there would be a really interesting, like there would be so much to talk about week to week, race to race, filling people in. Um, there'd just be a lot of content there. And it's something that I, I love. I love, I love the competitiveness of it. It ties in the cars. It ties in the competitiveness. Uh, it was a ton of strategy. And as a bona fide, you know, nerd, there, there's a ton of data. Modern F1 is basically a data crunching operation. Oh, wow. I hadn't thought like of it when, that way, but like, you're right. When, when, when Lewis Hamilton was on that, was on the Turkish Grand Prix, he said no to come in and they let it, they let him stay out. It wasn't because they were letting the driver have his way. They had, they had his pace against the other cars graph. Yeah. And they were noticing that he was actually, the other cars were falling off pace and he wasn't falling off as dramatic. So they let him stay out. The reason why they called him in really late is because they had done calculations and they were like, okay, if we bring him in now, we will solidify fifth. If we let him stay out, he could get third, but that's a very, very small margin. He's probably going to go six, five yeah. or six. So Mercedes made the ultimate data call, which is we're willing to flush this guy's championship run down the season as long as Mercedes gets the most amount of points. Oh, wow. So there, there's, there is this ruthlessness yeah. that, that runs the whole show. And you know, you're the driver, you, you have to get out there and execute, but, but the, the team matter and the team will, the team will flush your own aspirations right down the toilet. Very similar to Tour team. de France. Yes. And, 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 you know, there's only two drivers per team, like the, the tour, there's like 20 or, you know, what, how many riders are in a Peloton or how many yeah, riders are on a team? Five or five or six on a team. Yeah, at least. But th- th- there's basically one dude who's like as strong as the lead driver or the lead rider that they just say, your job is to make sure this guy gets all the favorable position, all the favorable calls, you know, get key, you keep people off of them. Uh, I think the position is called a domestique. So your whole, into your whole purpose there is to help the other guy win. Yep. Like exactly. To, to, to your, to your own detriment, if it, if that's what it takes. Yeah. Just like what you were talking about with Mercedes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there's, there's team orders. So there's like a lead driver and there's a, there's a support driver. They, they say that that's not how it is, but that's how it's. Um, and then on top of all of that, the team is willing to screw both of those guys. If it, if it maximizes the points, cause they're trying to, you know, they're trying to get up in the constructors championship because it's a lot like the NFL yeah. um, with, with ref share every, so there's 10 teams 
teams and every team gets a share of the pie. And so if you're, you know, if, if it's, if you're trying to go from like six to fifth, how many, how many, how many million dollar cars do you have to destroy to go from six to fifth? Because that's like a $10 million jump yeah. in, in your, in your rate. So the, the team who comes out first, you know, makes hundreds of millions of dollars. So they're paying, you know, they're paying big money. They got a lot of money out there on the track, but, but between, but the sponsors largely pay for all that. The right. team profit comes from like that. They get to split the whole F1 kitty. You know, at the end of the day, Eccle, you know, Eccles or Ecclestone sold it, but um, the guys who own F1 now um, take like 30% and the teams get the other, you know, the other half, the other, yeah. the other 70% after they paid for like advertising and stuff. So th- there's a, there's this incredibly intricate dynamic that, that underpins all of F1. I mean, it's, it's more dramatic than, um, you know, the NFL, it has all the, all the same, you know, elements. I just think it's fascinating. And then on top of it, you get to see cars, you know, cars go around in a circle and, you know, the eight-year-old boy in me is like, oh, look, car go fast. (laughs) (laughs) Now, if somebody does want to co-host with you on this, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you and reach out? Do they, do we have them email you or do we have them uh, send you a a tweet or what's, what's the best way to do that? You know, I'm, I'm kind of a social media moron. Um, I will give you my Twitter. Okay. You know, you can, you can DM me, but it's mostly me just, uh, you know, liking things and sharing memes. Um, it is at Cumbie, damn it. <laughs> my, so my, yeah, my is last it name. D-A-M-M-I-T? Yeah, it's, it's Cumbie, damn it. C-U-M-B-Y-D-A-M-M-I-T. You can tweet at, tweet at you boy. And I would love to, you know, go ahead and go ahead and eviscerate me on this podcast. And then also let's talk about getting on another one so you can, you know, top me there as well. Yeah, definitely. This was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. I uh, hope, I, I think we went a long time. Didn't mean to go that long. That's all right, man. But it was a lot to talk about. That's how you know it was good is we went a long time. It, it would suck if we went like 20 minutes, then we didn't have anything in our bag, man. It was a lot of fun. We'll do this again soon, right? Yeah, dude, I'm, I'm, I'm into it. Assume the juxtaposition is a production of Lukewarm Tallboy Studios. Come on, let's get some tacos.